Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 16th, 2023. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States, mid-morning. Uh, earlier this morning, we had a conversation with the British naturalist writer, Laleen Paul, who imagines um, writing in the voice of other species. She's just written a book in the voice of dolphins. She did one about bees. She's very much of a an environmental activist, a very credible, legitimate one. And in, in the conversation, she talked about what she described as double-decker buses of death to describe the vehicles that take the animals around. We all see them to slaughterhouses. Uh, when we think, though, mostly of double-decker buses or trains of death, we don't think of animals. We think of the way in which, in the 20th century, human beings were transported to their death. This is, of course, our memories of the Holocaust. We've done many shows on this, one with Linda Kinsler um, on the very idea of remembering the Holocaust. She has a major new book, a magnificent new book, Come to This Court and Cry. But there are many ways of remembering the Holocaust. We did a show last year with the American humorist Jerry Stahl, who has a book, 999, a humorist, uh, but also very biting satire on his experience of visiting Auschwitz. Um, others think about remembering the Holocaust in terms of defiance. Uh, Judy Battalion, for example, who was on the show a couple of years ago. And others are very ambivalent about memories altogether. Dara Horn, a, a very uh, influential and controversial contemporary American writer, came on the show last year. She has a book, People Love Dead Jews, uh, Reports from a Haunted Present. When we think, though, of the death camps, most of all, we think of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, and uh, uh, when you go to the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation, there's a very interesting quote on the front of the webpage. Uh, by a man called Henry Apple, and he says, uh, there is only one thing worse than Auschwitz itself, and that is if, if the world forgets there was such a place. Memory, then, is all important. And a man who is dedicating his life to remembering this is our guest today, uh, Wojtek Sojwitsa. He's been on the show, actually, before. I met him at DLD um, uh, in uh, in Munich last month, uh, but we had a, a short interview with him uh, back then, and now he's joining us uh, from his home in Warsaw in Poland. Uh, Wojtek, memory is everything, isn't it? Uh, that's what you're in, and I, I use this word carefully, you're in the business of remembering at the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation, but what is it most of all that you want to remember? Yeah, hi, hi, Andrew. It's it's very good to to see you again. Um, the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation has been established um, 13 years ago, and uh, the purpose was to take care of all the remains of this largest and best 
preserved concentration and extermination camp, Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and um, if you say that it's the most important thing to remember, then for sure this, is, uh, this has been and continues to be the biggest part of our mission, the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation, which is supporting the Auschwitz Memorial. And uh, we have to make sure that all the authentic remains, which means that all personal items of former prisoners, survivors and victims alike, but also the whole infrastructure uh, of the former camp, um, ruins of gas chambers and crematoria being the most cruel examples of, of the Shoah, but also uh, intact buildings, uh, brick barracks, wooden barracks, uh, remain with us for future generations because we believe that this is the example of uh, this is the the, the example of uh, of the darkest chapter of human history, and as such, it should be preserved. But this is not only our belief. We also see that um, Auschwitz-Birkenau is gaining more and more interest from people from all over the world. Uh, uh, in 2019, the last normal pre-COVID year, there were 2.3 million visitors coming to the Auschwitz Memorial. Uh, traditionally, it has guests from over 190 countries. Uh, the memorial has 350 guides who are presenting this difficult history in 21 languages. So um, it's not only our um, wish to remember, but we are trying to respond in the best possible way to, to the interest of, of people who seem to share uh, this understanding that it's important to remember the crimes of the Holocaust and those committed against other nationalities, ethnicities, Poles, Roma, Sinti, homosexuals. Uh, women, children, and so on, and so on. Um, uh, Wojtek, we did a show um, a couple of years ago with an American historian, Wendy Lauer, uh, another expert, a professional historian of the Holocaust. She has a new book out. She had a new book out called The Ravine, A Family, a Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. And it's a narrative built around a single photo of an execution of a woman and her child. It's a very moving book and, of course, a profoundly moving photo because it, in this photo you see the execution of an entirely innocent woman and child. How do you remember mass extermination? It's a much more difficult thing to do. I've been to Auschwitz and, of course, deeply moved by the the luggage and the hair and the rest of the remains, but there isn't a, a single image. How, how should we be remembering mass slaughter, slaughter on an industrial scale, which took place at Auschwitz? That's a very difficult question. And I think that everyone who comes to Auschwitz and sees the tons of human hair, which, which you have mentioned, or uh, the tens of thousands of um, shoes of victims, uh, the memorial is taking care of 100,000 shoes. Among these, there are over 8,000 children's shoes only. Um, these, of course, uh, trigger imagination, I believe. But I also think that it's extremely difficult to understand the crimes um, only on the basis of numbers. These incredible uh, numbers, 6 million Jews only were killed in, in the Holocaust, as we know. and um, uh, let, let me let me tell you a personal story. When for the first time I talked to to my daughter, who by that time was seven, I think seven or eight, she came back from school with uh, with an assignment uh, that she herself chose, and she wanted to speak about a bordering region in southern Poland between Lesser Poland and Silesia, and that is the area where uh, Oświęcim, the, the city of Oświęcim, 
So, uh, uh, which during World War II uh, was given the name by the, by the Nazis Auschwitz, uh, is located. And when I asked her why did you choose uh, speaking about this region, she said, because you're going to tell me about the history of the city and uh, the memorial. Um, for the first time, she came, uh, she came with this um, idea to, to me. And uh, I was surprised. Uh, uh, and I tried to, uh, to explain to her what the city is about, what it has to struggle today with, but also, of course, about the history, the tragic history of this, uh, this place. And uh, uh, be because it was spontaneous, she came to me uh, out of the blue. I was not prepared. I don't know if any parent can be prepared for such a difficult conversation, but uh, it came to me, to my mind, that perhaps I should try to... Um, uh, to, to explain to her what it means that so many people were killed or actually disappeared because in the imagination of a seven-year-old it's uh, probably not the right choice to talk about uh, planned killing uh, on such a scale or even with, with these uh, tremendous uh, uh, methods as, as used during, uh, during, during the Holocaust and World War II. So... Um, I didn't go into the 1,100,000 people killed in Auschwitz-Birkenau. I didn't even start talking about 6 million. What I used as an example were the 400,000 Jews of Warsaw uh, who were killed mainly in Treblinka, also in Auschwitz-Birkenau and other camps, but mainly in Treblinka, which is one hour away from uh, by car from Warsaw. And I said, listen, try to imagine that, um, and that was one fourth of the population of pre-war Warsaw, more or less. And I said, Try to imagine that uh, on one day you go to school and you have a certain number of uh, uh, friends and mates uh, sitting in, in, in your class. And when you come back to the very same class, five years later, there is one fourth or even one third missing. And uh, you have heard the worst stories, you have heard rumors, but you don't know what happened to these people. And this is um, my, my personal struggle um, or my personal um, way to trying to deal with with uh, with these incredible numbers uh, whenever I go to Auschwitz and I just returned today because the foundation is based in Warsaw uh, but we're traveling every two to three times every month to to visit with with guests with uh, politicians diplomats donors partners who are collaborating and supporting the foundation um, we have to we have to I, I am whenever I'm entering the the site I am confronted with this with this number and it's very difficult to to deal with um, um, with uh, one million people who who were killed in in the as I said in the worst of circumstances, but it's it's such an enormous number that I think uh, we are not able as human beings to deal with. So the challenge is nowadays um, to identify individuals um, through individual family stories, through uh, individual items. And the memorial is taking care of uh, eyeglasses, toothbrushes, suitcases, as you said, and many, many, many other items which uh, are anonymous in most cases, of course. We have no idea whom these items belong to. We don't know the names of, of their owners because uh, they are the only traces, the only things that, uh, that remain. And it is our responsibility today, I believe, and of uh, future generations to take care of these items because very often... They are the only ones uh, who tell the story. They are, uh, we call them the uh, material witnesses uh, because uh, it was Hitler's plan and the Nazis' plan to extinguish all Jewish life um, uh, and, and the traces of, of Jewish life and culture 
and contribution to so many countries um, from, from, from Europe, from the surface of, of Europe. So in many cases, these are the only remaining traces of their existence. And uh, I think that if, if my generation and the next generations don't take care of these items, we could be made co-responsible to some extent, tragically, ironically, um, for, for not doing enough to remember. And remembering is sometimes it's trying to connect the dots, which is a task that seems uh, impossible. But uh, uh, we are, or the, the tremendous uh, conservators at Auschwitz are sometimes very lucky. And only last year, there was an example of a, uh, a pair of shoes of a little girl from Czechoslovakia, uh, a Jewish girl who was deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And through coincidence, but also the great work of this conservator, she uh, identified the name of, of, this, uh, of this girl on the inner side of that shoe. And then she was able to trace it back to a photography uh, that she came across a couple of years earlier. And she remembered that, uh, that moment when she, when she saw that picture for the first time of a family. And then she remembered that the reason why she came across that picture a couple of years ago it was because she, um, uh, she um, was, was looking for traces connected to a suitcase. And then we understood that that suitcase belonged to the uncle of that little girl. So we are able not only to tell the name of this girl, but also uh, give, give her back some dignity through connecting with her family members who also died tragically, of course. But uh, these um, efforts in uh, identifying items, connecting them with names are perhaps a, a very difficult, in most cases, hopeless case, but to give back life to the victims, um, to the victims of the Holocaust killed at Auschwitz and other sites. It's not only Auschwitz, it's so many, so many memorials. So dealing with uh, big numbers is, is extremely difficult. Um, it's too difficult for myself. And I try to identify, um, to identify and to connect with individual stories. This, this makes this job uh, perhaps easier is not the right uh, expression, but it, uh, it allows us to understand the meaning of our work, certainly. Wojtek, you've done a lot of thinking about why this happened. Um, I found when you were a postgraduate, you did an interview about the roots of 20th century totalitarianism. Given the rise of authoritarianism and discrimination, racism in the world today, a lot of this stuff hasn't gone away. Uh, it, on your foundation, there is a note from... Um, uh, the president of the foundation about uh, a Nigerian young man, Omar Farouk Bashir, who's been imprisoned unjustifiably. Um, you know, I started this conversation talking about Laline Paul and the way in which now everyone talks about death and death camps. I mean, I'm not critical of, of Laline. I think she has a good point. For you and for the foundation, I, I guess it's really hard to... Um, figure out whether or not to treat what happened at Auschwitz-Birkenau as if it stands outside history or whether it's part of a continuous narrative. I'm guessing, uh, Wojtek, that this is something that you struggle with just as you struggle with personalizing this huge crime. Certainly, uh, the history of the Holocaust is exceptional. There is uh, no one serious... Uh, doubting, uh, doubting this statement, 
But you're of course right. It's uh, very difficult not to see parallels. And when I see, when I say parallels, it's not about the uh, um, exceptionality, uh, but it's about some methods that um, uh, regimes were using, some of them are using today to discriminate against people um, based on racism, on prejudice, on indifference. And uh, we see, and Piotr Cywinski, the president of the foundation, who uh, together with Jacek Kastelaniec established the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation, he, is, uh, he keeps on warning the world and uh, um, speaking out loudly during uh, uh, commemorations like he did on January 27th this year when he warned uh, against our indifference towards what is happening, happening in, in Ukraine nowadays. Um, uh, there are lawyers who are claiming that we are looking at the beginnings of, uh, of genocide. I don't, I don't want to, uh, to, to judge that. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer myself, but certainly there are very warning signs and uh, it's enough to listen to survivors. It's, it's so good that uh, many of them are with us and that they speak out and that they warn that um, crimes um, against humanity, uh, against minorities can lead to the uh, chimneys of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And this is, of course, the most extreme form of, of genocide. And uh, I hope that we will not witness it ever again. But uh, we have seen in the past eight years since 1945 uh, genocides and uh, people have been killed on the basis of their beliefs or race or um, other, other features. Uh, so, so I think that places like Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, other memorials also dealing with the history of, of, uh, of uh, events later in the second half of the 20th century or the 21st century should be a warning cry uh, against, uh, against crimes. They, they should warn us as, as human beings um, because we as human beings are capable of the worst of crimes. That is, I believe, one of the central um, objectives we have um, in, in Auschwitz-Birkenau. And uh, I am very thankful whenever uh, survivors uh, um, uh, use this place or, or other memorials, other uh, commemorations to warn us against uh, being indifferent because that's, I think, one of the um, biggest challenges to, to, to us humans in the 21st century. Um, what, what do you make of arguments? I'm sure you're familiar with Dara Horn's work and her book, People Love Dead Jews. The idea that people have focused on the dead Jews of, of, of the camps and particularly the Western Jews and Frank. And what we lose in that is the memory of this entire civilization uh, of Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. It, it, does, does Dara Horn have a point here? Well, I think we, uh, we need to remember that we, we, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to those who, who perished during World War II. And, and that's, um, that's uh, a no-brainer, if you will. And I think that we are not losing anything if we are remembering uh, their lives, if we uh, dig deeper if we uh, visit places where it's not only about the process of killing, but memorials are there to remember what we have lost and remember also the rich culture that was there before World War II in Europe. Um, in well, particularly so many in Eastern Europe, when I, at Yad Vashem, for example, um, I'm sure you've been there, um, 
there is a quote, and I, I, I still can't find it, but I think it's by Benjamin Applebaum about the disappearance of an entire civilization in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and sometimes, I guess, at places like Auschwitz, that, that gets lost. I mean, J Jerry Stahl, I don't know if you're familiar with his book. I mean, it's, it's pretty funny in a gruesome way, 999. He visits Auschwitz and he talks about the cafeteria and and this is not a criticism of what you're doing, but just the, the commodification of death. How careful do you have to be not to just turn this into a, a Disneyland of mass death? Yeah, extremely careful. And uh, every decision that is being made by the memorial is, is an ethical decision. Everything has to be weighed against risks. And you're right, this is in, in the Polish tradition. Um, this memorial, like all others, um, is a cemetery, so uh, all we do is to uh, pay our respects to those who, who have been killed at Auschwitz, and we are facilitating um, visits for, for other people who, because of a variety of reasons, um, find their way to Auschwitz-Birkenau, to, to the memorial. Uh, it's, uh, I don't think I'm in a position to judge. You know, in 2019, we had 2.3 million visitors at Auschwitz-Birkenau. It would be impossible to judge about every, everybody's motivation, why they came. And I'm confronted with this argument very often. Do you think that Auschwitz-Birkenau can change our behavior? Do you think it changes anyone? Um, yesterday, I met there with uh, a colleague who arrived from Italy. She runs a, uh, uh, another museum which deals with ancient history, ancient Greek history in Naples. And it was her first visit uh, to Auschwitz. She said upon Finishing the visit, she spent there three and a half hours walking with one of our guides. And she said, everyone knows about this. Everyone has heard the name Auschwitz-Birkenau. But when you come, it changes you. Because no one can imagine the scale of the crimes and the brutality of the crimes of, of the Nazis. And uh, I think that, for example, if we have a group of, let's say, 20 people from Italy, um, and they come because they visit Krakow, which is one hour away from Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they see, they see an opportunity. In the hotels in Krakow, very often you have these information leaflets, what could be visited, what could be seen. Um, I'm not using the word attraction because it's not a tourist attraction, uh, but people are, are, are well informed and some of them take the opportunity and they, they go and visit. So when we have this group of, let's say, 20 Italians who who um, make the decision, we are in Krakow, why not go and see this place? Most of them probably have come across this, uh, this word, Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, in their schools, um, in literature, in conversations. And I think, frankly, if only out of these 20, we manage to convince one that in their future life, they should... Uh, not be indifferent whenever something happens, whenever they see something happening in their neighborhood, someone is being discriminated against, if there is a case of racism or even violence, and they think back uh, of their experience in Auschwitz-Birkenau and of those individuals brought there in masses because they belong to, uh, to, to, a, certain, to a certain group in Europe, and they decide not to be different, indifferent. They decide to take up action to speak up, to do something, to help this victim, then I think we as humanity are on the winner's side. And it's, it's just one person we need to convince. And we are there to make this process 
um, as accessible as possible. Not as simple because it's terribly difficult, um, but as accessible as possible. And that's, by the way, also a reason why we decided to build a, a platform for remote guided visits. Um, COVID has. Right. And, that, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. We first met, I didn't expect to meet you at DLD, which is my favorite tech show of the year, put on by uh, my friends uh, Steffi uh, Cerny and, and Yossi Vardi, always in Munich every year. Um, but you were at this big tech conference and, and you're creating, and I, again, maybe this is not the right way words to describe it, but kind of a, a virtual Auschwitz, is that right? Yeah, um, Auschwitz in front of the of your eyes. That will be the that will be the working title. And in fact, um, together with two Israeli companies who have become very deep friends over the past two and a half years, uh, we um, have been working on a platform which will very soon make possible remote guided visits that will take place live. So you, for example, sitting in San Francisco, will be able to. Um, book a remote tour in the Auschwitz Memorial. Um, that means that you will go to the web page, you will select the day. Today it's Thursday, let's say on Thursday at 3 p.m. you will sit down in front of your computer and perhaps with friends um, or alone, you will be able to connect with a living human being at the other end, a guide. As I said, we have 350 of them guiding in 21 languages. So it's uh, it's going to be a global tool for Holocaust education. And then uh, within one hour and 40, one hour and 45 minutes, this guide will guide you through the history of Auschwitz-Birkenau, starting at the gates um, with the inscription Arbeit macht frei, walk uh, visitors through um, Auschwitz One main camp, explain the story, how it began as a camp for Polish political prisoners, and then developed into this killing machine for uh, for uh, the Jews of of Europe, and then you will uh, you will go together with the guide to to Birkenau and um, and have uh, a deep look into uh, the the operations of of the camp. It's going to be live. It's a live experience because we understand that Auschwitz Birkenau is not a traditional museum. Uh, it's something that requires. Um, different support from the guides towards its visitors. Very often we, we see that it's not only about content, it's very often about emotions. People come from different walks of life. Uh, uh, some of them have uh, memories uh, passed from family members, from survivors, for example, um, and they bring their personal stories and uh, very often they want to share. And guides at Auschwitz have to be excellent listeners also. Uh, so this is going to be a life experience and we are uh, now seeing in the beginning it was also mainly a reaction uh, towards COVID and the circumstances of COVID, consequences of COVID because the memorial like so many others was closed and many people from all over the world uh, contacted the memorial also the foundation and said we do understand you're in lockdown but please do something because Auschwitz is different it's not a uh, traditional museum, it's not a traditional memorial. We need to hear the testimonies of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Please find a way to communicate, even though the circumstances are exceptional. And we sat down with uh, this wonderful team at Apps Flyer um, and uh, later Diskin, a creative agency, and we figured out over Zoom, uh, that was the first time when I heard the word Zoom, 
And we were connecting uh, over six months and trying to figure out what could be the answer to that challenge. Um, the foundation coming from a background of preservation without any experience in new technologies. And uh, after six months, we came to the conclusion, yes, we need to establish something like a Zoom platform, but specifically for the Auschwitz platform, which needs to be uh, live. It needs to be based on, uh, on the human experience of guides uh, who will try to bring the story, the history of Auschwitz, its prisoners, their, their, their fates uh, to all those around the world who cannot make it in person. This has never been to replace a personal visit. This is something I would like to emphasize. We don't want to replace a physical visit of anyone. If people feel the need, if they want to come, they're more than welcome. Um, now, having run the first um, um, pilot projects, the first tests with the platform, we see that uh, people who, who participate in the remote tour uh, are telling us, 68% actually, have told us that this makes them want to come in person. So it, it, it means that it's increasing the, the need of, of people to, to visit Auschwitz-Birkenau if they have not been there in person. So it's not going to replace it. No, it's going to open uh, opportunities for all, all those who, who uh, have never been but would like to explore, but also those masses of people outside the traditional audiences uh, of the activities of the memorial who will never be able because it's just too far, it's too expensive to travel to southern Poland, um, or they can't organize. So I think it's going to be a revolutionary tool for Holocaust education. Um, and we're talking to schools in some countries already about pilot projects. And uh, I can tell you that it's, um, it's, it seems very, it looks very promising. Yeah, and people have strong opinions, I think, on that one way or the other. Of course, if you do it virtually, you don't get to go to Krakow, the nearest large city to Auschwitz. Um, in Krakow, it's an odd place, a beautiful old town. There's the, the Jewish part of town has been rebuilt, but there aren't many Jews, if, if any. Um, and of course, Jewish history in Poland itself is controversial. You're, you're not Jewish, uh, Wojtek, right? No, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. Uh, how how do you, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the whole controversy of, of Poland and the Holocaust, because that's subject of many books, and, and I know it's not your expertise. But how has the Polish, com, Polish community, and maybe there are communities in Poland, there's not a single community, particularly given the shift to the right in, in your country's politics. Um, how do they, how, how have you been treated? Are you uh, in any way concerned with some of the controversies of, of, of Poland's role or Polish people's role in the Holocaust? Well, first of all, the, the, the foundation has uh, never been, not under this government or any previous governments, has uh, been questioned in its, uh, in its mission, in its role, or no Polish government was trying to, to influence what, what we do, what we take care of, and now how we are going to, to educate based on, based on the authenticity of, of, uh, of Auschwitz-Birkenau. So uh, I, I'm, I, I feel very free in, in, in our decisions. The foundation is an independent entity, and it's, it's never been, uh, uh, it's, it has never received any political um, uh, instructions, if you will. Um, of course, there is uh, many debates in Poland, uh, and uh, I suppose as in many other countries. 
as to to the role of uh, citizens uh, during uh, during uh, World War II. Um, I, I, as I said, the, the role of the foundation is not to to to, uh, to get involved in these uh, in these discussions. It is our responsibility, and frankly, I see this as my personal uh, responsibility, being a uh, a baptized pole, and I think that uh, many other peers see it the same way here in this country and in other countries from the region, that it is our responsibility to, to remember, to do everything we can to remember um, the Jews of Poland, the Jews of other countries uh, in Europe and their contribution to, to culture and their creativity and uh, um, not, not to, to try to um, reinvent culture, but uh, uh, over 1000 years uh, Jewish presence in Poland and the incredible richness of, uh, of Jewish creativity and contribution to the culture. Poland would not be what it is today without, without uh, um, Jewish influence. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, when you look, for example, at the Pauline Museum in, in the heart of Warsaw, this has also to do with one of your previous questions. This museum is about uh, Jewish life, while um, Sometimes Auschwitz-Birkenau is portrayed as the museum of Jewish um, suffering and Jewish death um, in, in Nazi-occupied Poland. Th there is a, a dichotomy, there is a tension, of course. Um, uh, Jewish life in Poland was, uh, was very diverse before, before World War II, and uh, we, we don't see this. I mean, there are communities, luckily, um, they, are, they are very limited in numbers. Um, uh, which, which is completely contrary to what was here before 1939, before the outbreak of World War II. So it, it is a sad story. But then again, uh, museums like Pauline and any and so many other museums, local museums in, in many uh, regions of Poland are portraying the, the beauty of, uh, of, of Jewish life. This is something we have to cherish. Um, uh, and uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that so many people like myself uh, are, are trying to make a contribution. Wait, when I was preparing for this, it, it occurred to me that never perhaps in uh, this show is going to go out on LitHub as well, which is um, a book website. So a lot of people be watching and listening, people who are readers and writers. It occurred to me that never before or perhaps since in human history have so many great writers been assembled in a single small place. You know, I was just thinking... Uh, about um, Primo Levi and his book, If This Is Man, uh, uh, Jakob uh, uh, Borowski's This Way to the, for the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, two books have had an enormous influence on me. Many other books, many other memories um, were acquired by obviously survivors, some people who actually died. It's a, a bizarre kind of literary quality to, to, to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Does that come out, do you think, in visiting the place? It's a dead place, and yet it's so much alive because these books have survived and they are now the testimony of what happened. Yeah, you're right. Books, uh, literature, uh, extremely, an extremely important component of, of our work, and I think it drives uh, the uh, understanding and imagination of people before they arrive and during their visits. Um, because they are the voice of survivors and survivors have shaped over uh, so many decades uh, the way how we deal and understand this tragic culture. 
Um, that is one of the, I'm, I'm going to say an obvious thing, but I think it needs to be said over and over again. That is one of the concerns we have because time is passing and there is uh, fewer survivors uh, active and, and with us. We are, we are lucky that still so many are here and are willing to share and are willing to, uh, to come whenever we meet with, with young people and, uh, and young people are, are, are reaching out and asking if they could meet with, with a survivor. So it's still, this phenomenon still continues, but of course, um, time is passing and uh, everyone is asking themselves the question, what will happen when the last uh, voice will uh, become silent? Um, I don't know if new technologies, and we have met uh, in, uh, at DLD in Munich, a tech conference. I don't know if, if new technologies are the answer, um, perhaps, but I'm certain, very confident that uh, they're worth the effort. And uh, the platform for remote guided visits is going to contribute in some way. We will be embedding testimonies of survivors in the platform so that when visitors from distant countries um, decide to, uh, to, to run this, uh, this tour, they will also be able to listen and see survivors speaking and sharing their story. For example, from the selection ramp in Birkenau, where they are saying what it meant for them to, for the last time, see members of their families or what it meant for them to play in the uh, so-called Auschwitz Orchestra uh, or whenever they, they passed under the, uh, the sign Auschwitz macht frei. So these voices have to remain with us as a warning. And uh, I think that new technology is making a, a, a tremendous contribution to, to, uh, to letting them be, be, be heard in the future. Uh, but we, we shall live to see what, uh, if, if this will be enough, if this will be a, um, a, a warning loud enough to not to make us commit the same mistakes as in the past. Yeah, I think there's going to be a uh, probably already is a novel about the life and death of the last survivor of Auschwitz. Finally, uh, Wojtek, what you're doing is, of course, enormously important that there are going to be teachers, university people, uh, broadcasters watching who'd, who'd like to get access to this platform. What do they need to do if, if they want to pursue this virtual tour, particularly, I think, for, for, for uh, educators, for students, for high school students, for university students? So as I said, uh, this week we met with um, Abstleyer and Diskin at the memorial. We were running tests. Uh, right now we will be expanding testing into uh, audiences outside of uh, our partner organizations, but still in a closed circle. And most likely around mid-April, um, um, May at the latest June, the platform will be ready and uh, operational. Um, what people interested in, uh, in accessing through, through this remote way should do is to uh, visit every now and then the uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial um, web page where um, everything will be announced. Um, also on the foundation web page, you will find uh, in, uh, information about uh, when it's going to be launched. Um, and then it will be very simple because uh, if you decide to pay a visit Physically, you just need to go to the web page and then book a tour. It will be very simple, user-friendly. You will have to make the decision, do I want to come in person or do I want to take a uh, remote tour? And uh, uh, the, the price for both, because when you decide to visit and uh, book a guide, the visitors are required to, to pay a certain price for, for the work of the guide. 
uh, the price for both will be very comparable. We don't want anyone to make the decision, do I, uh, the guides in particular, do I guide the group which is remote or another which is physical? So it will be comparable. And then visitors through the web page will be able to book a tour, uh, select a date, select an hour, and um, find a comfortable place uh, in peace, in quiet. Don't do it at, at your office. Don't do it in uh, at, at work. You, you should uh, rather find a time that is uh, quiet and peaceful and then um, focus on, on this tragic history.